We're just happy to be here this morning uh, with you all. Many of you know a bit of my story. Um, uh, for the last 33 years, I've been a missionary in the Islamic Middle East, in the area, the region of Babylon, where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves, not by their own choice. They didn't go there because they liked the weather, right, <laughs> or the people, but God sovereignly moved in their circumstances and in his ways to get them from Jerusalem to Babylon. They didn't have any real choice in the matter. And in my own life, as I look back at the things that God has done when he saved me and how he called me and how he sovereignly orchestrated things in my life to get me to the place where he wanted me, which was never on my radar screen, the Islamic Middle East, spending 10 years in in a crowded neighborhood of the urban slum of Cairo's 20 million people and then moving to a refugee camp in Jordan, working with Islamic fundamentalists and Iraqi refugees from Saddam Hussein's dictatorship. I've lived in places like that all of my life. I've lived under dictators. I've lived under in socialist countries where the worldview of Islam reigns supreme. I've always lived in 100% Muslim neighborhoods. And you can imagine what it's like to share the gospel in that environment, what it's like to live in a context like that. That's where I found much of my life and much of my calling that God has put me into. I think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the first group of young Jewish captives who went in that first tour from Jerusalem to Babylon must have been a little shocked, I think, as they stood on the Mount of Olives and maybe looked over their shoulders and said, will I ever come back at my age of 17 or 18 or 19? Will I ever get to come back and see dad and mom? Will I ever get to come back and see my beautiful country, that beautiful temple over there? No, no. They would not get to. In less than 20 years, that temple would be destroyed. And they would spend the remainder of their lives in Babylon, serving three different, five different kings under three different kingdoms. Pagan kings, ungodly kings. And as I've been thinking and reading through the book of Daniel, I've been so encouraged by Daniel this last three or two or three months. I've been so encouraged by Bob's sermons as well. They've been very encouraging. Uh, he's been doing a great job, and I can't even begin to compete with that. I just want to share this morning a couple of my thoughts and my reflections that I've been reading the whole book of Daniel. I might be in a couple of different places, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 6, maybe even 3. <laughs> but I want to share, uh, really, I, ha- I originally have like about 12 or 13 points, but I can't do that. Bob said I had to make it short, so I made it six points. Bob said I still can't do that, so I'm going to make it about three or four points. That's probably still too much. It might just be three points. Who knows? But here's what I've got. You know, I think a lot of commentators have said that the book of Daniel is a survival guide. It's a survival guide. It's a guide on how to survive. But I think it's more than just that. It's a guide on not only how to survive in an antagonistic world and worldview, but how to, sur- how to thrive. How do we thrive to the glory of God in that environment? I mean, did these people not bring glory to God? They did. Much praise and words of adoration to God was given up through the witness of these people. One of the first things that comes to my mind, if I was to hit a few key points that are things that we need to know about and understand if we're going to survive, and not only survive, but actually to thrive in a society that is antagonistic towards us, that is difficult, that is very hard to live in, is that we have to understand, we have to come to know and believe 
in a deep way that God is sovereign over all. And I think that's one of the very key points of the whole book of Daniel. It's one of the great themes of Daniel, definitely. God, Jehovah, he is God. He reigns over all. He's in complete control. His plans are never thwarted. And he does all that he desires to do. And he will accomplish his plans. And I think right away in Daniel chapter 1, we see that Daniel, as he writes this book, has a bit of an agenda. And he wants to get that point squarely across to us. You see that in a thrice-repeated phrase, very quietly, very small, in Daniel chapter 1. If you turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 1, you'll see it with me. He starts off by saying, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. You see that little word there? And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. Was it Nebuchadnezzar's might? Was it his power? No, it was the Lord God who gave King Jehoiakim into his hands. You see it a little bit later in verse 9, when after Daniel in verse 8 has resolved that he's not going to defile himself with the food, the king's food, it says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave them. God gave Daniel favor. Was it Daniel's uh, winsome ways? Was it Daniel's manipulation? No. God gave Daniel favor. You see it a bit later in verse 17 when God summarizes, when Daniel summarizes uh, that as for these four youth, that's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them learning and skill in all wisdom and literature, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Was that because they're smart kids? No. God gave them these things. God gave, God gave, God gave. And I think Daniel's addressing a real big issue for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, who found themselves in Babylon, is God still alive and well with us here? He was there in Judah, we know that. That's the place of the temple, that was the place of the law, that was the place of the priests, but is he with us here now in this context, in this disaster that we find ourselves in all the indoctrination, in the three years of forced education, and the learning of new sciences and new things that probably involve pagan idolatry, and the forced changing of their names, is God still in control? Yes, He is. Yes, He is. And this is a very important truth for us to come to understand. And you see it all throughout the whole book of Daniel. I love it in Daniel chapter 2, right? When Daniel chapter 2, there's that vision and uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he demands that all of the people tell him what the dream was and what it means and if you don't tell me I'm going to tear you from limb to limb <laughs> and da it says Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came together and they prayed and they sought the Lord for wisdom because they did not want to be torn from limb to limb what happened? God granted to Daniel not only the dream but the interpretation of it and Daniel, in his response, is so joyful. He's overwhelmed. He says, blessed be the God of heaven. In verse 19 of chapter 2, blessed be the God of heaven. It is as though he breaks out into spontaneous praise and says, blessed be the God, the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom. 
He reveals deep things, and he knows what is in the darkness. It's all about God. And this doctrine of the sovereignty of God brings a great peace and a real joy to Daniel in the midst of terrible circumstances. And I think that this is a real key for us to surviving, actually, and thriving in a very difficult situation. I got the notes here of the singers. I don't want to combine that with my stuff, so I better move that over here. I take their notes away. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God brings great peace to us, does it not? In all the hard things we go through, it's so important that we know beyond knowing deep in our hearts, not only in our minds, yes, in our minds, but that God is really in control. And he loves me with an everlasting love. And he's for me and not against me, even when I'm taken a prisoner, even when I'm put in hard situations. Again, I go back and I think of all the things in my own life in the Islamic Middle East. I have been spied upon by local police. I have been kicked out of numerous neighborhoods. I've had to leave my house because of preaching the gospel. I've been kicked out of countries for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been called into secret police a number of different times, mostly in Jordan, and asked about what I believe, especially about the Bible, and what I tell people about Jesus, especially Muslims. I've been arrested just for a few days, but it was enough. It was a scary situation, I'll be honest. When you're arrested and nobody knows where you're at, not even your wife or your kids. And you're taken, you're handcuffed with machine guns all around you in a far place after three days of investigation. And you're taken to an underground prison and nobody knows where you're at. Unjustly, not accused of anything, but all the question was about Jesus, the Bible, and sharing the gospel. That's how much of the world lives, my friends. That's how much of the gospel goes forward in most of the world, my friends. The American experience of the last 200 years is unique. And looking at the signs of the times these days, it may not, become, may not be so unique much longer. In order to thrive in contexts and environments like this, we must know God is in control. We must know God is in control. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Everything's come against them. They must bow the knee. Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol, right? You all are to come. And they were, they were prefects. They were governors. They were in charge. of the, they, were, they had high places and positions of authority in the government. Nebuchadnezzar made a command. Everyone in the whole kingdom is to come and bow down the knee to my idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not do that. They would not do that. They knew God was sovereign. I love that statement in verse 17. Now, first off, Nebuchadnezzar gives them one more final warning after he's heard that they're not going to bow. And he says, who is the God who can save you from the fire? Well, they actually have an answer to that. We have an answer. We actually do have a God who can save us from that fire. In verse 17, it says, if this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It was because they had a deep-seated trust and rest in the sovereignty of God. They knew who he was, and they knew what he was able to do, that they could say no. And they submitted themselves to his good sovereignty, whether He rescued them 
or whether they would be burned. Christian, I want you to be assured and aware of the fact that God has you here right now where you are at this time, in this day and age, at your age, for a purpose. We have all been brought here by his good sovereignty. He has saved us and called us and appointed us here in this time in America. Not back in the freedom days of the 40s and the 50s and the 30s and the 20s even, the 1800s. But no, 2020, he has you here to be a witness, to stand up for him and declare his sovereignty and his goodness to all mankind. But I think it's also important, whenever I speak about the sovereignty of God, whenever I speak and think about the sovereignty of God myself, I have to come to a second thing that's very important for me to understand in Babylon, and that is that God loves me. God loves me. I always speak about the good sovereignty of God, his good, loving sovereignty at the same time. Because if we look at it just from just that angle, there's a possibility, that is the sovereignty alone, there's a possibility that we could get Uh, maybe a little discouraged or a little fearful or maybe see it as a bit harsh. But God, our God, is described as a God of love. And there's a very unique thing that happens three times in the the book of Daniel. Three times towards the end in Daniel chapter 9 and 10, Daniel himself is particularly told that he is a man greatly loved of God. Greatly loved of God. I know we're going to flip all over here, but turn to Daniel chapter 9. I think this is very important to to them, to him. It's important to me to know that God loves me. In Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel comes to Daniel as he's been praying. That was a very good message that Bob gave on Daniel chapter 9. I think it was the first one in the series. He started at 9, so I can start in other places throughout the the book too. Um, Daniel... Gabriel Gabriel comes to him in verse 23 and says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, Daniel, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? That Daniel got a great privilege in all the trials Daniel was going through. He got this amazing privilege. Gabriel comes to him and says, Daniel, you are greatly loved. And then a little bit later in verse chapter 10, you see it again in verse... um, 10, I believe it's the same angel, I believe it's still Gabriel. He says, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. Second time, O Daniel, you're a man greatly loved. And then the last one is in the same chapter, verse 18. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me and I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Look at the results that came to Daniel, especially in verse 19 here. He had a freedom from fear, a freedom from fear given to him because he knows God loves him. He has a peace A peace that comes to him because he's been told God loves him. He's actually strengthened. He's already declared his weakness. He actually receives strength because he's told God loves him. He gets courage. Courage because God loves him. My friends, the love of God and knowing that love and being intoxicated with that love in our lives is motivation for holy living. It gives us courage to stand up. I don't stand up in the Islamic world and preach to Muslims because I'm a strong man. I'm not. I'm actually kind of a bit of a fraidy cat, if the truth be known. 
I have a lot of fears and a lot of weaknesses, and I spend a lot of time praying, Lord, give me strength. Lord, help me in this situation. Father, help me to communicate in a loving and truthful way because I feel like caving sometimes. How do you think Daniel had the strength, the fortitude, and the courage to withstand the threat of lions? I think it's because these phrases of the love of God were made known to him, and he knew God loved him. He knew that God knew his name. He knew that God knew his name. Do you know that God knows your name? Do you know that? Do you know that you are loved of God? The whole New Testament, the whole gospel message is very much that. In love, I have predestined you from before the foundation of the world. Romans chapter 5. God demonstrated his love toward us. And you can put your name in there. Don't just make it the plural, us. Put your name in there. God has demonstrated his love towards me, Scotty, and that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. So much of the gospel is that. It is the love of God for sinful man, sinful you and me. It's very important that we know the love of God. That is how Daniel, I believe, was able to deal with things like the lion's den. Knowing these two truths, the sovereignty of God and his love for me, and I think I've mentioned this before as I've come here, one of the things I do, I try and do scripture memory every single day, and one of the things I do in every single day of the week, seven days a week, I have one verse that deals with God's love for me. And I just recite it to myself every single day. I need to be reminded daily that he loves me, and so do you. I have loved you with an everlasting love loved you with an everlasting love. So we take these things, and once we come to know that, you know, I think I always think of that one verse in 1 John that says, we love because he first loved us. Once we learn that he loves us, then we can also move in love and in power. There's a unique verse in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, a very unique one in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. I thought much about it, but just simply it says, the people... He speaks about the work of the evil one, I believe the Antichrist here, but then he says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, or they shall be, um, King James, how does it say in the King James, the people who know their God shall be firm, they, they shall, people who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits, I think it's the King James says. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. When we come to know God, that gives us the strength to be able to stand firm and take action. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew much great things of their God. They knew greatly of his sovereignty. They knew greatly of his love. They were able to stand in the face of the fire. They were able to look into the pit of the lions. And that truth is so true. When we, the more we know of God, his character, and his goodness toward us, the more it will actually produce within us a faithfulness and a desire to obey his commands and serve him wholeheartedly. I think of that one verse in Isaiah 43, 10, where it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand, in order, excuse me, in order, I have chosen, in order that you may know me, I think it's know and believe me and understand that I am he. In order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. As you come to know who God is, you actually will be a witness for him. Our witness is very much tied to our knowing who God is. I think the third thing that really stands out to me in the book of Daniel, 
uh, besides knowing and needing to know the sovereignty of God and knowing and needing to know the love of God towards us is this whole issue that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go, go through a lot of different times, and that is knowing where and when, uh, knowing where to draw lines and when to take a stand. Knowing where to draw lines and when to take a stand. Um, I think the book of Daniel gives us, uh, gives us actually a number of scenarios. I want to just look at three of them quickly here. In back to chapter 1 again, we have this unique line drawn in the sand for Daniel, so to speak. Uh, I, I basically say we need to draw a line when we know that something will defile us. You see that in verse 8 of chapter 1. It's time to draw a line when we know that something will defile us in this situation. You know, Daniel, of course, is given this three-year education. They've had their names changed from good, godly Jewish names to very bad pagan names. But suddenly Daniel says in verse 8 that he has resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the king's wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, the scriptures do not tell us why. Was it an issue of breaking the Mosaic law? Was it an issue of how the food was sacrificed to idols before it was offered to them to to eat? It doesn't actually say that. What really is emphasized is that Daniel chose to not do it because it was an issue of defilement, defilement for him. Somehow, in his mind, in his conscience, he felt this would defile him. This would make him unfaithful before his God, and he would not do that. And it's very important, my friends, that we do walk always in a sense of not wanting to be defiled by the world system around us. There is a truth in all of the, new, in the scriptures about being separate from the world. And it's a hard thing sometimes. We are to be in the world but not of the world, right? And that's sometimes a hard line to figure out exactly how to do it. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about you know, not being unequally yoked with the world, you know, not having great fellowship with light and darkness. And we take that to be a great truth of believers should not marry unbelievers. Yet at the same time, we have to work with them in business sometimes, right? And so it's not always an easy cut and dry line, but we have to make decisions and seek always in all things to not be defiled. Um, In fact, in that passage, if I could just briefly look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 the very end of it there. That's when he says, therefore, in verse 17, he's talked about not being aligned with the world system in so many ways, uh, in the idols of the world or in lawlessness or in fellowship with darkness. Um, he says, verse 17, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no one con- unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. We're to be a people seeking to be holy and not defiling ourselves with, with much of, what, of the garbage that's out there in the world. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In this day and age, we need to learn and seek the Lord as to where and when and how to draw lines to not be worldly. 
to not be worldly Christians. We need to be Christians who are holy. And how is that going to look in our society and day? Daniel felt that this was a line too far. He could not eat that food. For whatever reasons, his spirit within him said, no, this is a no-go. I draw a line here. I want to be holy. I do not want to be defiled. We cannot eat every single thing that the world serves up for us to eat, my friends. Daniel needed discernment, and he needed to be resolute. And these are not things that are very popular in our society and culture today. A second thing, and a second time when we need to, make, uh, to take a stand, we can see in Daniel chapter 3, back to the fiery furnace again. Um, you can imagine, Daniel chapter 3, you can imagine, how am I doing for time? Okay. <laughs> you can imagine that the pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was great. In fact, once again, we see a thrice-repeated thing. Throughout the book of Daniel, look for the three things repeated. It's all over. All over Daniel's three things repeated, three things repeated, three things repeated. Here we have two sets of three things repeated. Or, yeah, two sets, three times repeated. That's the list of all those people and the list of all the musicians and the music. You can imagine the intensity that would be building around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when all of the satraps and the precepts and the governors and the counselors and the mayors and the financial leaders and the judges and the lawmakers and all the experts in all the provinces will combine with all the noise of all the music and all the horns and the pipes and the lyres and the trigons and the harps and the bagpipes and all the music three times in a row, it said, to force them, to compel them, to push them, to come down upon them, to bow the knee. It was very intense. Very intense. What's it like when everyone else is bowing the knee and you're not? Have you ever been in those environments? I've suddenly found myself in the midst of a huge city square with thousands of people bowing the knee in Islamic prayers to Allah, and I'm standing up. You know what it feels like? Did you see the picture the other day of that one baseball pitcher? I think it's for the San Francisco um, Giants, who, when they all came together for the at the beginning of the game, the whole team took a knee to BLM. But he stood up. He's, it's the weirdest picture. It's like the pictures used to be a long time ago when only one guy stood up for BLM, so to speak, and everyone else was not. Uh, one guy took a knee and everyone else was standing up. Now there's one guy standing up and everyone's kneeling. And when the reporters afterwards asked him, I think his name, I forget his name, but he's the pitcher for the Giants in San Francisco. Reporters said, why did you not kneel? He said, because I'm a Christian. And I cannot bow the knee to anything but God. Think about that in our society today. Think about all the kneeling and bowing that is coming to our society today. I cannot bow the knee because I'm a Christian. I only bow the knee to Jesus Christ. There's a lot of false idols that we are being thrust, that are being thrust at us today, and we're actually being forced. <laughs> like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today, we have all kinds of leaders and all kinds of satraps and governors and experts telling us to do certain things, and all the music of the media and propaganda is going along with it as well. And it's pretty hard to stand against the flow sometimes. We have the idol of choice. Maybe you 
know it better as the idol of the god of child sacrifice on the altar of choice. The world, the media, and many in our political, uh, of our politicians today, especially in one party, want us to bow down to the god of child sacrifice in the abortion industry. They hide their murderous agenda by saying phrases like, we're pro-choice, and you're anti-choice. But that's a misnomer. All true Christians and followers of Jesus are pro-life. In the womb to the day of death. That's who we are because our God is the God of life. We will not bow down to that idol. No, no. Abortion kills a beating heart. It is that simple. And Christians need to recognize this and stand up for it. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And yet our society is going lock, stock, and barrel towards it. And there's the, the idol of Black Lives Matter. They were called to bow down to and take a knee to, to a Marxist movement that is atheistic in its worldview. It's atheistic in its worldview. It seeks to replace Christ as the only answer for sin. And by the way, we agree, injustice is sin. Oppression is sin. We don't like that. We do believe, all Christians believe in all life, all black lives, all lives in general. Even the black lives that are aborted every day. What is it, approximately a 1,000 every day? We think all those lives matter. But we do not take a knee to a Marxist atheistic agenda that seeks to destroy God's family that he's created. That's their actual purpose. Go to their website. Read about us or what we believe. They seek to destroy the biblical family. They seek to destroy the image of God in mankind by really pushing an LGBTQ agenda. That's part of their agenda. And they want to do it by riots. That's not a thing that any Christian leader should bow down to. And I thank the Lord for many of the good messages I've heard from Pastor Bob over the last few weeks and months and really years where he stood up in so many of these ways. I thank the Lord for that. You are a blessed fellowship to have a leader like that and a, and a teacher like that at this church. I praise the Lord for that. Then there's the God of the, the false idol of political correctness, which is really the fear of man. According to the standards of our world today, God is the most politically incorrect person in the world. The false gods of sexual perversion, which I cannot get over how fast this idol has entered our society. We are forced to play the fool and give lip service to dumb things. I have no other way to say it, but things that just don't match my mind. I've got to say a man is a woman and a woman is a man. And I can't bring myself to do that. And yet all society, I feel sorry. I pray for our teachers this is the kind of stuff that's coming hard, hot, and heavy against us, kind of like the worship of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that was required of them. Bow the knee, Shadrach. Bow the knee, Abednego. Otherwise, you're going to get burned bad. Woe to those, Isaiah says in verse, chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. At the rate our culture is going, it will not be too much longer before just simply reading Romans chapter 1 will get your pastor arrested. I really believe that. It's not that far away. This summer alone, five street preachers have been arrested in Scotland. This summer, for, for saying one thing, homosexuality, homosexuality is a sin. For saying that, they have been arrested. Five in Scotland. This summer. 
The gospel that we're called to preach is a call to repentance from sin. Because sin, the wages of sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I could go on, but enough said here. And then lastly, when we're prevented from worshiping God, then it's time to take a stand. When we are prevented from worshiping God, then it's time to take a stand. That's what happened to Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 6. He was prevented. He was, there was a concerted, concerted effort against him to not pray to his God, Jehovah, Yahweh. You can't do that. Pray to me, but not to your God. Daniel knew that was the time to take a stand. It was the time to take a stand. And I think that's pretty interesting that in our day and age, America woke up one day this spring to a land that was famous for religious freedom and suddenly found the winds of persecution blowing. Blowing. We've been told that we can't gather, and even as of this date, there are thousands of churches in America that are not gathering as of this date. I read an article today, they're saying that they expect one-fifth of churches to completely close and fold by the end of the year in America. One-fifth. You can get an abortion anywhere in any state. You can get booze and pot anywhere in any state, just about. Well, you can cross over to some state lines. You can gamble in Nevada, but you can't meet in many churches. And yet, the scriptures are very clear. We're commanded to not forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Especially as you see the day drawing near. My friends, do you see the day of Jesus Christ drawing near? I do. Many godly people, many saints, many godly pastors, and many leaders across the America are seeing the day of the Lord Jesus Christ drawing near. Like never, I think, before in any of our lifetimes, unless maybe some of you lived through Adolf Hitler. <laughs> especially all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're told we can't sing, and yet we have a book in our Bible that's completely dedicated to the corporate singing of the praises and worship of God called Psalms. It's not only an invitation to sing to Him, there are, it is replete with commands to sing to Him corporately. It seems like these are hard times we're living in, and they really are hard times. But Christ Jesus is still the King. He's on the throne. That's one of the great, the greatest, the great truths of all of Daniel. Jesus, the one like the Son of Man, comes from the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, and he's given an authority and a dominion and a kingdom that's eternal. And that was started when Jesus came to earth the first time. And it's still going on right now. His kingdom is growing. Just this Wednesday, I got the privilege to have a Zoom visit and watch one of our co-workers' wives get baptized, along with his nephew. You know the lady who made all the purses? Some of you, guys, some of you all have the purses that we made last year, uh, that we had the purses, the different colored purses. I think a few of you, no, no one's nodding your heads, but I know that they're here. That lady, we've asked you to pray for her. She was baptized on Wednesday, and her nephew was also baptized. God is at work all over the world. And God is at work in America right now, too. And I think these are wonderful days. I'm excited about what God has for the American church today because I believe persecution will bring a purifying effect to his church. And I think it's time. We've needed it for a while. 
it seems like sometimes nothing seems to work with God's people except for a little discipline. And so I think this is, I mean, I, I didn't get to go to my fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh points. That's okay. <laughs> One of the last points was the need for prayer. We are in a spiritual warfare, like Nate said. We are in a spiritual warfare. And one of the other great themes of Daniel is prayer. Daniel was a man of prayer. Prayer, 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 prayer. Every chapter has prayer. Are you a people of prayer? Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying in your small groups for the church? Brush Prairie, but for the church in America as well. For the leaders to be firm, to stand firm, to be strong. Prayer, praying for this election, that God will rule and overrule, that some good men would be appointed, many good men, many good men who will make laws based upon God's laws, not man's ever-changing, fluctuating laws. Why not? And that in all the spheres in which all of us are in, we would all live to the glory of God. And my wife just said, time, it's time, I gotta go. Samuel Chedwick, in his, Samuel Chedwick, in his book on prayer, said, The one concern of the devil is to keep saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. We have a role in this day and age to be in prayer. Ask the Lord Jesus to be glorified, to build his church, to build his kingdom, and move forward in the knowledge of God's good sovereignty, his love for us, so that we can accomplish things for his kingdom and do great action. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for how you have gone before us in, 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 in these beautiful books like Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah. And the truths that you teach your people, even after nearly well over 2,000 years. And Lord God, I just pray that in these days you would build up your church. Give us strength, Lord. Give us strength in all of our respective areas to stand. Lord, there's different contexts, even throughout these 50 states. It's different there than it is here, or there than it is there. Lord, we pray for all of your church. We pray that you would build it up. Give strength, give wisdom, give discernment. Help the leadership to know when and where to draw lines, when to take a stand. Lord, teach your people deeply of these truths, of your good sovereignty and your good love for us. And may all the glory be given to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.